Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud, and bring them low. Look at all who are proud, and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of God. We're taking a few weeks to look at the book of Job, which addresses really one of the most difficult moral and philosophical questions in our world. Why do bad things happen to good people? So Job was a very good man, but his life was struck by disaster. In a very short period of time, Job lost his possessions. He lost his business. um, He lost all of his children. um, He lost his own physical health. Still had his wife. Uh, She was not much help. He did have some good friends um, who came to spend some time with him. But when they they were with him, they insisted that Job's troubles must be caused by some hidden sin in his life. So they weren't much help. And Job's pain was so deep that it was like his filter came off. And so he turned to God and he basically said, God, you're unfair, you're against me, and you're cruel. And much to the shock of Job's friends, uh, God did not strike down Job for talking to him like that. Really what Job was asking for was a personal meeting with God because he was convinced that he had gotten a raw deal and so he was begging for a chance to present his case and see what God had to say for himself. Um, And beginning in verse 38, Job gets what he asked for. So very simple outline today. Um, I wanna talk about Uh, what God said, and I want to talk about how Job responded, right? What God says, how Job responds. So what did God say? Over these four chapters, 38, 39, 40, and 41, God makes two separate speeches um, separated by responses, quick responses by Job. God really has the floor for most of the time here. And just like we're used to in the book of Job, very poetic, very kind of... um, 
difficult to, to grasp sometimes, but when you look closely, you realize that God is basically making two basic points. First, God talks about the limits of human knowledge. The limits of human knowledge. For example, chapter 38, verses four and five, he says to Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Um, you know you're in trouble when God starts to get sarcastic with you. <laughs> it, it just can't be good. Surely you know. Tell me about it, Job. Tell me about laying the foundations of the earth. How did that little project go for you? And then for the rest of chapter 38, it's as if God says, buckle up, Job. We're going to go on a little ride. And he takes Job on this tour of the natural world from, from the floors of the ocean to the peaks of mountains, to deserts, to clouds. Um, and then he launches into the vastness of space. Did you know that if you were to get into the space shuttle, if it were still functioning, I think they retired it recently, but if you were to get into the space shuttle, you could travel from here, from New York to California in, you know how long? 10 minutes. That's moving, right? 18,000 miles per hour. So if you were to get into the space shuttle and you wanted to take a trip to the moon, you would show up at the moon in 13 hours, half a day and you would be standing on the surface of the moon. So at that speed, how long do you think that it would take you to get to the closest star to here? 160,000 years. And that 18,000 miles an hour, it would take 160,000 years. That's just the nearest star, and there are billions more beyond it. That was the kind of thing that God was pointing out to Job in his own way and Job's head was beginning to spin. And then in chapter 39, God launches into a, a tour of the animal world, and he bounces from one example to the next. And let me just pull out one example. Job 39, 26, God says, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? So more sarcasm, right? So Job, you, you know all about the migratory patterns of, of hawks, right? You know how it all works, it was your idea. And Job is thinking, well, no, but... Let me show you a picture. This is called an Arctic tern, T-E-R-N. Um, the Arctic tern is one of many birds that migrates every year. It moves around uh, based on, on the climate. And so every year it, it leaves Greenland all the way in the north and it travels in kind of a zigzag pattern down to Antarctica, all the way in the bottom of the globe, and then back again, which is 44,000 miles a year. How many miles do you put on your car a year? Like 15, maybe 20,000 miles? 44,000 miles a year. Since these birds live for 30 plus years, the average Arctic tern travels about one and a half million miles in its life. And that's just one example. Those were the kinds of things that God started pointing out to, to Job, and Job was beginning to realize how massive the world is and how little he knew about it. So that was speech number one, the limits of human knowledge. But God wasn't finished. So in speech number two, he starts talking about the limits of human power. So if you think back during those past 35 chapters when Job was kind of ranting with God, probably the main thing he was upset with God about was for being unfair 
right, for letting injustice happen, for letting, for letting bad people lead happy lives while him, a good person, had, had a, a, a sad life. So look what God says in this second speech, Job 40, verse 11. He says to Job, okay, unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Curse the wicked where they stand. In other words, Job, you think that, that I'm doing such a bad job creating justice on the world. You think you could do a better job of running the world. Go for it. Show me how you would honor people's free will, and at the same time, you won't let anything bad happen to anyone. Show me how you'll allow people to genuinely love without allowing the possibility that people will hate. Make it all work together perfectly. Go ahead, Joe. And then, for the rest of God's speech, he uses these two, I don't know how else to say it, bizarre examples from the animal kingdom. So he talks about these two huge animals, um, the behemoth, which is probably a hippopotamus, and Leviathan, which is probably an alligator. And in a very poetic way, God says, Joe, have you ever tried grabbing a hippo by the ear and making it your pet? No, you haven't been able to do that? Have you ever tried wrestling down an alligator and you're keeping it in your, your living room? Oh, you haven't been able to do that either? Well, if you're not even powerful enough to, to subdue a couple of random animals, what makes you think you're powerful enough to run the universe? And I think by this time, Job was beginning to regret that he'd asked for the meeting. <laughs> because up until this time, um, even though Job had been in a lot of pain because of the suffering and the loss that he'd had in his life, Job was feeling kind of confident in himself, right? Like, like he, he understood the situation perfectly well. Things weren't going correctly. The universe was unfair. He was getting a raw deal. God's mismanaging the universe. I know he's mismanaging my life. He was just very certain that his view on the situation was correct. But now, after spending some time in the presence of God, he wasn't so sure. He was starting to question his questions. He was starting to doubt his doubts uh, because he was beginning to see the utter hugeness of the universe and his own smallness in comparison. I was at the Jersey Shore once, and I, I got up early to see the, the sunrise. So um, I, I walked you know, on the path over the dune, and I looked in front of me. And so this is, this, this is the scene that I saw. I just snapped this with my, my iPhone. And so it was awesome. The sun hadn't quote, quite broken the horizon yet, but it was beginning to color the clouds above, and it was this beautiful sight. Awesome, but I, I had seen that kind of thing before. And as I was looking at it and taking pictures, I caught something out of the corner of my eye, and I turned around to look, and literally, when I turned around, I, I literally caught my breath because I saw this on the western horizon. And, and so as, at the very same time as the sun was coming up over the Atlantic Ocean, uh, this full rainbow, and the picture doesn't do it justice, you could see both sides of the rainbow, and I kept looking back and forth between the sunrise and the rainbow, like, God, you're just showing off, aren't you? <laughs> And it was just one of those times that I was so taken with the, with the ridiculous beauty and awesomeness of God's creation. And it just kind of put me in my place. Have you ever had those moments? It's fascinating to talk. Almost every astronaut who has gone into space talks about a situation like that where they're so, they feel small and yet sort of 
exalted at the same time, if you can say that, like they know that, that this is a good thing, that they're, that they're small in the presence of the awe of the universe, and it, it just kind of makes them be a little more quiet um, and, and, and a little more content. I think that's how Job was feeling because of what God had said. You know what God didn't say, though? In his whole speech, God never says, oh, by the way, let me tell you why all this bad stuff happened. You're never going to believe this. I had this talk with Satan, and he thought that if I messed with your life, you would... There's none of that. There's no explanation. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought, that's pretty much how it is usually, right? I mean, how often when things go badly in our lives, how often do we get this neat explanation? We go, oh, it all makes sense. Apparently, God is less interested in answering our questions and more interested in expanding our vision. And the question is, when, when God relates to us like that, how do we respond to that? So let's talk about how Job responds. And I see three really important things in, in Job's response. First thing I see is humility. Deep humility. You know, before this whole encounter with God, um, let me remind you how Job was talking. Uh, this, is, this is kind of at the end of Job's rant. Job th- uh, 31, verse 35. After he finishes his, his making his case, he says, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Like, God, you got a problem with me? Write it down. But now, after hearing God, listen to Job. Job chapter 40, verse 4. I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. The Hebrew word for unworthy is actually a word that means light or lightweight, which is fascinating because, um, you know, the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, is a word that means weightiness or heaviness. So Job is saying, now that I've gotten a little taste of the weight of God's glory, I I feel like a lightweight. (laughs) Like, man, I'm fighting way out of my weight class. That's humbling. In Job 42, verse 3, he says, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Like, maybe I know a little bit less about the world than than I thought I did. That's humility. Not too long ago, there was this this debate uh, between a guy named David Eisenbach, who's a, a professor at Columbia University, happens to be an atheist, and Tim Keller, who's a Christian pastor from New York City. Um, David Eisenbach grew up uh, going to Catholic school, but the thing that really ultimately caused him to lose his faith was, was the Holocaust. He just could not wrap his mind around, if there's a God, how that God would have allowed millions of innocent people to be killed. So during the beginning of the conversation, um, Keller said, said something I thought that was brilliant. He said to this atheist professor, you know, when you're trying to understand suffering, disbelieving in God doesn't make it any easier. And so it's fair for you to ask me as a Christian, uh, you know, how does your view of life explain suffering? That's fair. But it's also fair for me to ask you, how does your view of life, how does an atheistic view of life explain suffering? Is it any more compelling? Is it any more comforting? Or does it just leave you empty? Um, And I think that's a very fair point. So later in the discussion, Eisenbach asked Keller, just straight up, 
why didn't God stop the Holocaust? And Keller said, I don't know. There's the humility. I don't know. But if I can't think of a reason, that doesn't mean that there can't be one. Um, and, and he gave this, this example. It's kind of a, a, a funny illustration. He said, imagine if we're on a camping trip together, and I say to you, hey, check, check inside the tent and see, see if there are any golden retrievers in, in the tent. And so you go and you look in the tent and you don't see any golden retrievers. There's no big dogs in there. So it's fair to assume that there, there are definitely no golden retrievers in the tent. But if I say to you, hey, go in the tent and see if there's any, any of those no You know what a no is? Little gnats, they're so small they can get through the, the net, you know, the, the screen, and they can come and bite you in your tent. So if you go into the tent and, and you look around and you don't see any no <laughs> um, that doesn't mean there aren't any, because if there were, you couldn't see them, right? So he said, you know, when, when we're looking for reasons for things, why does God allow this? For some reason, we think the reasons will be more like golden retrievers than they will be like no but why? Why should they be? Just because we can't see a reason doesn't mean that there, that there can't be one. I think that's what Job was beginning to realize. He could not imagine any reason for suffering in his life, and yet that didn't mean that there wasn't a reason, and that started to humble him. This, this whole thing was so ironic uh, because... Remember why Job was so angry with his friends? Why he was so disappointed with his friends? Because his friends had judged him without really knowing the full picture, right? They thought they knew everything and they were making their judgment and that angered Job. And now Job was realizing, man, I think I've done the same thing to God. I've judged God without really knowing the full picture and I'm starting to realize that and it was just humbling. The second thing that I see in Job's reply is, Trust, trust. Job 42, verse two, Job says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And the key word there is is purpose. Job was recognizing that life is not random. So instead of just assuming, hey, God doesn't know what he's doing, there's no purpose, Job begins to express trust that God is orchestrating his life towards some goal or purpose. In John chapter nine, Jesus and his disciples are walking along, they come across this man who's blind, and uh, the disciples instinctively ask Jesus this question, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? You recognize the formula of Job's friends? If something bad happened, we know that bad things only happen to people who do bad things to deserve it. So Jesus, which was it? Was it this guy himself or was it his parents who sinned to cause this to happen? Tell us, tell us what it was. Um, you know what Jesus says? Neither. Neither. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He just blows up the formula. The formula doesn't work. And then he says, but this happened so that... He's about to get to purpose, right? And, and I find Jesus doing that often. Let's not, let's not spend our time looking backwards and, and, and insisting on finding a cause. Let's look forward. Let's look in the future and ask about purpose. He says this happens so that the work of God could be displayed in his life. So when things don't go the way that we want them to in our lives, even when we can't trust or we can't see a purpose, are we willing to trust that God has one, that it's not random. That's a big ask 
um, and that takes faith. Third thing I see in Job's response is comfort. Um, comfort's actually a big theme in Job because after, after Job's tragedy hits initially, his friends come, it says, to comfort him. They wanna bring comfort to their friend. Um, after they have incessantly lectured him, Job says to them at one point, you are miserable comforters, all of you. You have failed. And then all through the book, Job is looking for some kind of comfort in his misery. So look what he says after listening to God. This is Job 42.6. He says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So you're looking at that going, I don't see any comfort there. I repent in dust and ashes. Sounds like defeat, right? Sounds like sadness, but there's more going on here. I so appreciate in the English Standard Version of the Bible, the ESV, probably some of you are using that version, there's a little footnote for Job 42.6. And so the main translation says, I repent in dust and ashes, but the footnote says, or you could translate it, I am comforted in dust and ashes. So the, the Hebrew word that's used here can mean to repent, or it can mean to be comforted. And the more I thought about this, the more I realized Job finally found the comfort that he was looking for, but it wasn't the way he thought he would. It wasn't because he finally understood why he was suffering. And it wasn't because his suffering had stopped yet, right? At this point, Job is still in dust and ashes, which means he's still a mess. But right in the mess, he's comforted. Why? How did that comfort happen? Because the living God of the universe was talking to him. And just think about that for a minute. God was not speaking a word to Job's self-righteous friends, but God spoke to Job. You know that place in the book of Exodus where it says God spoke to Moses like a person speaks to their friend face to face. And that's what was going on between God and Job. And maybe you go, well, yeah, he spoke to him, but he was all sarcastic and nasty to him. He was all cold, but it wasn't nasty. It wasn't cold. That was God's masterful way, strong way, but masterful way of making his point, not to humiliate Job, but to teach him. So Job had this amazing privilege of sitting at the feet of God and having a personal conversation with him. Um, one of the Bible commentators that I read in preparing this, I love the way he, he said it. He said, it gradually dawned on Job that without knowing why he was suffering, he could face it so long as he was assured that God was his friend. I think we're getting close to the heart of Job's message, and it's gonna become even more clear next week when we look at the last chapter. But it's something like we can face suffering when we know that God is our friend. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, why, why did God let that shooting happen in South Texas two weeks ago? Why did God let the shooting happen in California this last week? Seems like we're talking about one every week. Why has God allowed so many women to go through this hidden sexual assault, sexual abuse, and allow that to be kept through manipulation, through pressure on those women that so many of them are coming out now? Why has God allowed the suffering that's taken place in your life? I don't know. But the message of Job is that comfort is found not necessarily in knowing why. Comfort is found in knowing God. Um, being maybe less sure of what we know about everything, but, but being more sure 
of, of whom we know. In that, in that interview between Tim Keller and, and David Eisenbach that took place at, at Columbia, there was one more thing that's, that's stuck with me. Um, Keller at one point said, you know, the, the, the Christian view of God is different from any other view of God because in the Christian view, God actually came down to earth to suffer. And then he strangely tells the story of his family cat. Um, I finally found something I don't like about Tim Keller. He's a cat lover. So he, he he tells a story about his family cat, which broke its leg. And so they brought it to the vet and they ended up, ended up spending like $1,000 to get their cat's leg fixed. And he said, we would have spent anything. We, you know, we just, it was miserable to watch this beloved pet suffer so much. But he said, almost anyone would, would acknowledge that human suffering is of a higher order than cat suffering, right? Because humans are more aware and their, their suffering is more, more meaningful. And so if you believe the gospel that says God himself came to earth, his suffering would be way beyond even, even human suffering, right? Because the, the higher the being, the more profound the suffering. You have cat suffering, I would say cat suffering. Here, you have human suffering and you have divine suffering. It's the deepest kind of suffering. And you go, well, what does any of this have to do with anything we're talking about? It still doesn't answer our question, why does God allow suffering? But it rules out one explanation. We know it's not because he doesn't care. Because otherwise, he wouldn't have come. He wouldn't have suffered with us. Um, Why does God allow suffering? I don't know, but it's not because of hard-heartedness. Because of the cross, we know that God suffers with us. Because of the cross, we know that we are friends of God. And I'm beginning to realize that when we suffer in life, maybe that's the thing that we need to know more than anything else. I'm going to ask now that our communion servers would come and prepare to service communion. And let's just prepare our hearts to receive communion today.